This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight you're joined by Dan. Hello. And me, Vanessa. And we also have special guests behind the desk this week, Lucy Kane. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Tonight we are going to be exploring location-based behavioural analysis and the algorithms attempting to predict crime with local RMIT academic Dr Flora Salim. Then we are going to find out all about ACME Education's competition for student filmmakers, animators and game developers as we speak to screener ambassador Lisi. But because she's around and she's been on the show a few times, she's practically a regular, <laughs> we've pulled her onto the panel as well. When, just to, just to get rid of me. I'm well, just to get the here. pound of flesh out of you, Lisi. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, good to me. Excellent. Well, in news this week, a uh, little bit on the My Health record. Uh, the opt-out deadline has been extended. Now, this is a government program to consolidate health records across a whole range of health providers and automatically create a digital record of your health history. Um, the reason that some people have decided to opt out, uh, there's, there's many reasons, but um, they might have concerns about how the records are going to be managed, the accountability of these, the transparency of these, the security, and uh, the government making um, opt-in kind of automatic. So opt-out was an option. Uh, they were having trouble on the My Health Records site in handling all of the opt-out requests. So there were concerns that some people wouldn't get them through in time. Therefore, the government's responded and uh, announced a new cut-off date. If you don't make the choice by the end of that date, you'll be amongst the estimated 17 million Australians for whom a record will be automatically created. Um, there are lots of good reasons to have a health record, but there are also um, lots of really valid reasons why you might not want to at this point until certain types of concerns are addressed. We've spoken about it a lot on the show before, so I'm not going to reiterate all of those concerns today, but please do read up on it and figure out if it's right for you. I personally have opted out. I also have opted out. I well, forgot. I need to do it. Well, they've extended the date, <laughs> yeah. so... I feel like we, we've represented a broad swathe of the population <laughs> yeah. here. Excellent. Um, another little piece of local news that's popped up is uh, Ned Dwyer, Melbourne lad, has been working on a product called Spritz. It is a corporate card solution which doesn't require staff to front up payments before being re reimbursed by their employers. I don't know if any of you have had this experience with work corporate cards. Um, it was more one time I was working for a pizza delivery place and forgot to take a bottle of Coke, so I had to stop at the supermarket and buy my own. You know, then, relatable, uh, relatable. And then give them the receipt. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And it's awkward to handle that sort of reimbursement yeah. expense, you know, evidence procedure. Yeah. In my, uh, yeah, high, uh, high flying uh, <laughs> world. Exactly. Well, the aim of this spritz company that Ned's working for is to simplify the whole process, to get rid of receipts collection, automate the expense reporting. Um, the product is just in the US at the moment, but uh, we'll be following this story closely to see if they launch here too. It's just exciting to see um, local people doing really cool things, having moved to the valley and uh, made a su success of themselves. So we'll be keeping track of that. Dan, did you check out this third article? Did you have a chance um, to have a look? I did. Uh, so uh, x-rays are now 3D or can be 3D. Well, um, if you combine them with PET scans. Yes. So it's a bit technical, obviously. It's a, yeah, a bunch of um, PET scans, and which is positron emission topo tomography. 
Topography? Yeah. Yep. Tom- tomography. Tomography, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's uh, a little bit above my head. But, well, they've, uh, they've merged like x-rays and these PET scans. Yeah. And I think that's what's revolutionary about it. Um, so the, they've called the product an explorer and it's a medical 3D scanner. It's um, been put together by researchers at the University of California, Davis. I haven't heard of it. Uh, I've heard of it in movies, but I wouldn't know what they do. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, it's One of its key features is that it's a lot faster than a normal PET scan, so it can turn out a whole-body diagnostic scan in less than 30 seconds. And the videos that they've put out about it are really cool. So this is not in the market yet, but it, it's expected to be in six months. Um, and some of the things that they can do with it are inject glucose into a body and then follow that as it moves throughout the body so you could see it going in someone's ankle coming up their leg going into their their organs and the blood system and kind of then being pushed out through the other leg and everything it's quite fascinating yeah absolutely yeah um so i don't know it's it's cool that there's some interesting tech developments in medicine at the moment We've just been joined in studio with our special guest for the evening. Her name is Dr. Flora Salim, and she is a senior lecturer at the Computer Science and IT School of Science at RMIT University. Her research interests include human mobility and behaviour analytics and context and activity recognition and urban intelligence. And we might unpack a few of those terms as we go through our discussion tonight. She was awarded the RMIT Vice-Chancellor's Award for Research Excellence, so we're in very good hands. And tonight she joins us to discuss some recent research findings. Welcome, Flora. Thank you for the opportunity to be, you know, and welcoming here. Oh, it's a pleasure no to have you. Um, so we're pretty excited to read an article that spoke about some research that a team of yours recently released. And it was um, something to do with Foursquare data and informing crime prediction modelling. I wonder if you can describe for us the broad thesis that you had at the outset of your research. Before I start, I just have to say that uh, I like to attribute this work to to my PhD student Shakila Kanrimi, who is the lead author of this work. Mm-hmm. So this is this work is la- largely uh, her effort. Yes, and under my supervision and also my colleague uh, Dr. Curtin. So. Um, We've always been interested in exploring data, especially mobility data, and you can actually obtain this data from a lot of sources, especially sensors that that have been uh, proliferated around our world these days, as well well as in smartphones. And actually also one uh, one source of data that has been uh, largely available are actually social media. So Mm. with things that are posted online, we actually even view humans themselves and our sensors because they're, they're actually not just posting thing, you know, uh, where the current state is, but also where they are, so the check-ins and all that. So um, mobility data have been used to uh, to, be in, to infer a lot of things, for example, uh, demand prediction of uh, public transportation or mm-hmm. understanding um, largely uh, uh, basically operational, um, you know, uh, re- resources as well and mm. and also understanding for example health impacts uh, based on people's mobility mm. but uh, it hasn't been quite explored in issues like crime so um we we actually uh, um started the work really quite accidentally because um 
just about three, four years ago when I started, um, you know, when I had actually a day where I'm just sitting down and uh, I have a bit of free time and I'm just actually looking at a couple of newly recent, recently released open data and I found actually the crime data that's just, that was just released in Brisbane was very interesting because it's actually quite raw. So right. it actually gives you a, a raw timestamps of crime, right. um, uh, crime event that happened and also the categories of crime and all, actually in uh, quite a fine-grained uh, mesh blocks rather than actually suburb level. Mm. So, um, and I actually think that there's something we can do with about the, about this data. If if the data is actually given on, on these raw states, can we actually predict what's going on leading to this event, right? So, and... Um, so I, should it, I keep going? Or? Yeah, please, please. So, uh, but even back then, bef- uh, there's al- already a lot of fascinating work with... Uh, pr- Pratt Paul, I'm not sure if you're aware of that work, predictive policing. So this was started in the US by, I think it's the UCSD. So uh, they work closely with people, people, for example, in Chicago police, where they really use uh, purely the crime history data uh, to be able to predict crime, uh, future crime right. better. And uh, so basically based on um, the rate of uh, crime that happened in the past um, and uh, the spatial and temporal um, information of that crime as well. It, they can do really well, for example, predicting home burglary. So um, the police can be there and anticipate or oh, a crime might happen here uh, uh, and they can anticipate a home burglary. But um, the thing is, it's very limited in certain types of crime categories. Uh, so what we actually... Um, wanted to explore is uh, with these data sets. And we found not only Brisbane, there are a lot of uh, other cities in the US, for example, New York, actually have released similar data sets. And it has a lot of different categories of crime that can happen. It includes drug-related offense, um, you know, traffic-related offense, assaults, uh, theft, so pickpockets, you know, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. things like that, um, which are happen a lot in public areas. So we then explore this and say, okay, now let us pull all the kind of data that we can get that can perhaps um, give us insights into what sort of urban situations that may lead to a crime event. Mm-hmm. So is it to do with, uh, you know, uh, the, the dynamic immobility? Is it to do with weather? Is it to do with, you know... Uh, is it because it's a public holiday weekend? Exactly. Or, or is it because or it's just because there's uh, a bus happening around this area and mm-hmm. we can just access the uh, uh, an area where I like to go to mm-hmm. easier? So... So we actually pull all this kind of data. So, and we also pull in demography data. So mm-hmm. we, we do not discount um, existing work in this area. So we actually include all the, uh, the factors that, that previous researchers have found to be able to, uh, to predict crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've included all those things. So we include um, basically crime history. And all the statistical features of crime. Uh, we included data from uh, ABS, for example, um, so the demographic data. We also include uh, place uh, of interest data. So, for example, the geographical data uh, features, for example, what are the distribution of different types of venues in this uh, in this block? Is it 70, 70% entertainment and 30% educational? So what what is the saturation of mm. all these different venue types? And the the volume of visitation ar- across different venue types and all that. So we look at the entropy and distribution across di- different visit, visit, visits as well. 
But one thing that we also pull in as well is the um, uh, check-in data. Mm. So the check-in data uh, we get. Uh, so just to to backtrack a little bit, the data itself uh, was ten years in Brisbane, but um, we need to be able to find uh, a period of time where all the data intersects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this was actually between 2012 and 2013. So it was quite an old data. Uh, back then, uh, if you remember Foursquare, it was quite a very popular app. Maybe not these days. But back then, uh, when you check in where you are with Foursquare and you're linked with Twitter, you're automatically posting your check-in history. So it's um, it's an automatic, automatic opt-in. So... so so let's unpack that for a second. Yes, people are using Foursquare at that time, and yep. like you say, not so much now. And they're and they're putting their location, so you can track a bit of movement of population. Exactly. But obviously, they're not putting in, and I can I'm committing a crime at this place. <laughs> no, 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 they're not. So, so, so where are you pulling in? You're pulling in that after the fact. To, exactly. To this is after the fact. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, the data is of course, purely anonymized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's basically just a check-in, a user ID, which we don't know who. Is it, if it, is it Frank or is it Joe? We, we don't know, right? But we've got history of check-ins. So, for example, uh, we, so we do this on aggregate level. So uh, uh, we look at this mobility uh, feature. So uh, if, you want, if you're interested in the details, they are in the paper. But we look at, for example, things like, um, you know, what, uh, how many of regular visitors of this area within this period? Mm. Like, is this going to be, is this a, a common day, common time? Or is it just a, a, comp- a completely s- a strange time where there are just new visitors who have never been in this area before? Or, uh, and also we look at the uh, region popularity. We look at surrounding region popularity across different distribution of different uh, venue types. And, and actually, all these different distributions um, uh, is very informative. To uh, and somehow there there are different correlation and different signal into the different types of crime that are happening. Um, so with know, so within. much data, I imagine that you had a, a whole lot of possible relationships to figure out and discount like, and try and figure out is this statistically significant or not and did you use like a machine learning approach to test all of these yes. different scenarios so there are two things we test mm-hmm. um, the first thing is we have different sets of features uh, you know first is the uh, 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 historical crime features uh, the second um, are dem- demography features the third are um, the uh, places of interest features or so spatial features we call them uh, and we also look at temporal fe- features and then we look at the dynamic mobility which means this looks at uh, the, his- the the whole history of people's check-in and on aggregate across the places and the venue categories across, across the region so and we basically test uh, how uh, what is the uh, uh, correlation uh, uh, between um these different sets of features with a certain t- uh, t- uh, type of crime. Mm. That's the first thing. And we found that the dynamic features are very informative and uh, has a quite a significant correlation. And second, building from that, we then actually tested uh, several uh, classifiers, including uh, um, SVM, tree-based classifiers. We use LDA, and we use, also use an ensemble model like Random Forest. And then we actually feed all these different features together, and actually we, we, we observe whether, for example, between um, uh, 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to 12 p.m., uh, which 
of these uh, sets of features are the most informative mm-hmm. uh, in combination with the different models. And of course, the ensemble model is the most powerful. But we, we found across the time period, uh, the dynamic features boost prediction accuracy for uh, predicting crime such as assault, um, uh, theft, and drug-related offense. Uh, but it doesn't do as well for traffic-related offense. Right. So somehow the dynamic mobility itself uh, ha- has a lower correlation with... Uh, uh, that's what the t- data tell us yeah, across yeah. both Brisbane and New York. Gee, that's an interesting data set. <laughs> so basically, it it's, it's basically says perhaps, you know, uh, if there's a traffic-related offense, you know, uh, regardless, people who dr- uh, just drive badly and you know, create traffic, it doesn't really matter whether there's a lot of people in the area or not. It's yeah. just going to happen. Some people just drive badly. <laughs> yeah, you know, or risk-takers risk t- or, yeah. you know. Because this is uh, so dependent on the area like Brisbane and New York, is there any way to use these algorithms to move it to another city? So would you be able to use um, some of this data to uh, understand how crime would occur in, say, um, Melbourne or, you know, L.A. or something like that? Absolutely, because uh, uh, what we actually propose is actually an approach. So somebody could actually take the same approach that we did and replicate it as long as there's uh, data. And the thing is, the dynamic mobility data here, we actually used uh, data collected by uh, another group in uh, France who actually crawled uh, mm-hmm. this uh, Twitter feed and actually yeah, collected uh, over two, almost two years' period of that um, check-in data. Uh, and, and you can actually do the same with, perhaps, if you have a large-scale um, taxi pickup and drop-off. For example, or Mikey data, or you know, yeah, so cell tower data. It could be anything, right? Yeah. So one part of your research that I found really interesting was that you talked about the gaps in in location based data, and you're like, we might have like a lot of great data on people's movements around a city, but there'll be gaps. And you developed a recommendation algorithm to try and help you fill those gaps. Now, if you mm. talk that through like a story, would it be you know, how would that work? Would you say because there's a fast food outlet and some petty crime happening here and we think that correlation's stronger, can we then extrapolate that to other areas where these same conditions are met or how would this work? Yeah, so uh, recommendation systems um, uh, have are known uh, for some of the techniques like, um, you know, matrix factorization or collaborative filtering, which what we actually employ in our in our paper, uh, in our research, was basically uh, good to work with uh, sparse data. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, uh, Netflix uh, subscribers, uh, once they start watching uh, uh, certain sequences of uh, movies and they start rating what they like, um, and you know, every, you know, every recommendation system will be able to find, for example, uh, similar users like them mm-hmm. and who and what are the similar things that they might like. And we actually did that also for check-ins. Basically, if they like certain venues, maybe we don't even have the full data of their check-in because mm. people are not di- 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 they're not going to diligently check in all the time. Yeah. But can we fill in those gaps with uh, these techniques? Oh, that's amazing! So it's at quite a minute level that you're you're adding to like fleshing out a profile, really. Exactly. So being a piece of university research, it comforts me to know that you've had to check this through an ethics committee. <laughs> what were some of the, the ethical issues that you came up against? I used Foursquare a lot in Brisbane 
in the years 2012 to 2013. So I feel very vulnerable. You're so called out (laughs) right now. I know, exactly. I I loved Foursquare. It's so (laughs) funny how things change like that. Um, People kept fighting to own the Foursquare of the Triple R studio. It's like, who was the king? Yeah. (laughs) The mayor? Was it a mayor system? I can't remember. Yeah, Yeah. it's very very funny because it was such a gamified system Mm, and people just love, you know, getting on on top of the ladder. Mm. Um, So uh, there are a couple of projects where we really have to get ethics approval before we can even proceed and this is in cases where for example we collect the data ourselves or um, we get access to uh, data where um, there'll be a chance where we might be able to uh, identify who the users are but in this case because the data is publicly available uh, we don't need ethics approval right so because there is no no way on earth we'll be able to know. Uh, okay, uh, so and so are the top ten people within this check-ins that might be able to contribute to this crime. We won't. We won't be able to no, match, no, match no, those. No, so, no. so that's why we don't even need to have ethics. Bring them in. Let's so get them in a lineup. I guess what I'm thinking about is there have been quite a few articles about the use of machine learning and AI type of solutions, particularly within the crime field in the United States. Mm. And some of the famous ones have been around um, making uh, advice to parole boards, but there have also been ones around crime prediction. And the issues that have been raised by people like Cathy O'Neill have been around that the input data to some of those those models have already shown a bias, um, usually against people from low socioeconomic backgrounds or people from, you know, minority backgrounds who are overrepresented in those systems. The concern was that perhaps they were overrepresented for, um, you know, systemic um, bias reasons um, rather than anything else, uh, particularly if they look at, say, the data on the amount of pot smokers in the US versus the amount of people who actually get arrested for pot smoking and that there's a real discrepancy um, based on where you come from. You know, uh, so, so there's that sort of thing. And I wonder if, you know, you're working in an area like, you know, crime prediction modelling, if, if you've been looking outwards to some of those kind of risk areas and thinking, what can we do to remove bias from our models? Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, uh, this is especially very sensitive in a way. Of, if, for example, in crime prediction, is uh, in our work we only predicting uh, location and time and the right. type of crime that might happen, right. but we're removing the identity out of it. Oh, that's or the kind group, of good group to know. That's it, really right? great. But if let's say um, people are doing work like you know, okay, these are the list of people on the bail, mm. and can we predict if they're going to be on you know? on action again mm-hmm. anytime soon now with that kind of work then there'll be a lot to do with um you know removing bias from the learning yeah because um uh what you fit into a model is what the, the model tends to try to, to learn anyway so you can always try to find something that uh, a model will be able to find yeah so uh, i think it's very important to to be able to remove that bias in um and there, there are multiple ways of basically how to sample the data you know uh how do you actually um whether you even start sampling correctly yeah you know, and, and so is that something like that. that a lot of work goes into teaching of students these days like- well uh it's actually very early work mm. because uh, the thing is um uh, the work on fairness, aware um, machine learning recommendation system, or trustworthy or bias-free. I mean, some of these p- 
papers, uh, seminal papers in this, in our in our area in uh, data analytics, and uh, for example, at, in uh, our top conference is called KDD, for example. Uh, the t- tutorials in, in in these topics have only started about like maybe two years ago, two or three years ago. So it's actually pretty recent. Yeah. So because of the boom of uh, big data and even mix with personal data and all these things. So, Mm. you know, these ethical issues have actually somehow come to the surface. Yeah. Look, it's an exciting time to be to be looking at things like that. I guess uh, there's also other areas when you're acquiring data that you haven't collected yourself. And that's in checking that it's kind of right, like quality assurance on the data. Is is that a big issue? Yeah, data cleaning is always uh, one of the hardest things you have to do first. And sometimes, uh, just giving an example, a, a project where, that we were involved in with a large company, they gave us the data. Um, we actually have only managed to start the research at the end of the second year. Wow. The first two years was just cleaning. <laughs> That's <laughs> even more intense a problem. Than exactly. I, I guess you just throw resources at that. Um, all right. Well, so there was another research project that you've been involved in that it would be fun to hear just a little bit about um, before we let you go. And this was about um, using algorithms to predict with high levels of accuracy what we do in the second half of our day based on what we did in the first half of our day. So tell me how that came about, because that sounds really interesting. Oh, I'm actually interested to know how you actually know about this work because this is actually a very recent work. It's going to get published in uh, in, uh, in Ubicom Proceedings uh, next month. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, work done by uh, my uh, former PhD student, Amin Sadri, who's fin- Finnish and now works in Urbis as a data, senior data scientist uh, and in collaboration with uh, Microsoft Research and also Cambridge University. Mm. So uh, we, we, we basically ha- have access to this large-scale data collected with smartphones in two different projects uh, one is a um, there was an app called device analyzer um, collected by Cambridge um, it was released uh, uh, many years ago like six years ago maybe it was uh, um, available on Google Play Store so people can actually download it to be able to de- analyze the performance of their device the energy use and how much traffic yeah, and all those things, de- things de- de- device analyzer yeah. and and there are hundreds of thousands of users across the world and we have access to that data and uh, but we what we did was actually we only focus on association with a cell tower. Uh, because the data is fully um, anonymized and also the uh, uh, geo uh, coordinates are removed. So we don't even know, for example, if this is a, a user from China, if it's a user from Australia, we don't know. But we just basically want to know how regular how regular is a person's life. So if somebody actually starts the day uh, in certain way, uh, um, you know, and we see repeated instances of that, how similar is the second half of the day? And we found that they're actually pretty similar because we're really creatures of habit. Um, and we found in a different data set. So this is actually a data set uh, collected by a cohort of students in uh, in Switzerland. So this was collected in Nokia Mobile Data Challenge. So in here, uh, we actually have the geo-coordinates. And, and we found very similar findings. So And even if there's an anomaly, uh, the deviation is pretty small. So they try to be able to, you know, go back to the routine. 
So um, it's so interesting too that this was such a big data set and it was worldwide. So that seems to suggest that there aren't a lot of cultural differences in like how habitual humans are. Yeah, so we do have to, for example, take into account things like maybe um, you know this is a Monday rather than this Friday or things like that. But but actually, um, I mean, if you can consider your life, how you actually start your day in a certain way, and that's pretty much habitual. You know, maybe your your typical Friday is quite similar to uh, maybe not quite similar, but maybe your typical Monday and Tuesday are. Mm-hmm. Could you see a merging of the two projects? So your uh, location-based crime prediction software and this uh, how-you-spend-your-day software. How oh, she's deviating. Yeah, yeah. Good no, one. I guess it's, it's, it's a very different application because the one that we did with this, uh, you know, predicting the next uh, the half of the, uh, the next half of your day, it's basically for personal use. So yeah. we train the model on individual uh, okay. records. So basically uh, it could be used for an intelligent assistant. So, okay. for example, you know, uh, I know how where you're gonna move next, but the thing is, uh, we look online. There's a strike or there's a disruption, so you okay. it might be able to notify you early. Think about how this could help us achieve our ten thousand steps a day. It'd be like if you keep going on like this, we know what this day looks like for you. Yeah. You're not making yeah. your ten thousand steps. <laughs> yeah, all things like that. So we try to make it for personal use. Oh, yeah. that is so interesting. Well, Flora, thanks so much for telling us about your research tonight. Where should people um, look you up if they want to find out a bit more about this, the crime prediction research. Um, unfortunately, I haven't actually updated my homepage for a while. So if you can go to florasalim.com, there's a there's a link to my Google Scholar. So the the work is actually there. And if you even Google a crime prediction um, and Foursquare and Foursquare, <laughs> yeah. and you put in Florasalim or RMIT, there'll be a lot of media releases on, on, on you know coverage on this uh, work. And we also have a paper uh, publicly uh, available, open access at EPJ Data Science. Uh, just uh, you know, I think two or three weeks ago. So. I'm still working my way through the paper. Actually, it's yeah. it's really interesting. It was worth a read, and I was yeah. excited to find it in open right. access. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. But Lisa's actually now here in her capacity as a guest, so we're going to introduce her properly. <laughs> you might have heard her on the show before in her capacity as a co-founder of Girl Geek Academy or about her work as a game developer of League of Geeks or even as a Forbes 30 Under 30 to watch in games. But tonight she joins us as an ambassador for Screen It, the national competition for student filmmakers, animators and game developers. It's presented by Acme's education team. Welcome back, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's amazing, always. Um, so, look, Acme put on so many great things, mm. but I think sometimes to a lot of the public, um, their education events are a bit invisible if they're not students anymore. So tell us um, about Screener. I know it's been going for a few years now. Yeah, it is it is um, Australia's biggest film-related festival for, for kids in schools. Um, it is – I think it's over the last few years gone – it used to be just film – but now it's also film and games, which is really, really awesome oh, to see. Oh, that's nice, yeah. Um, I think this year we have around, there were 400, over 400 applicants, um, which covers over 2,000 students. Um, and I'm I'm actually originally not from Victoria, so I look at this kind of stuff and I'm just in awe of like what they're doing and the support that they're driving and even just the ambassadors that they're bringing on board, the fact they're getting amazing hosts. It's all really awesome, inspirational work for people at an important age where they're making decisions about what they're interested in, what they think they could do when they grow up, all that kind of stuff, and allowing them to be supported because it's not just about a competition. They actually get mentoring during it. They have online workshops. And then they get, 
you know, a red carpet event at the end of it. It's just a really awesome. I wish I had something like this as a kid because I would have just been like, I knew what I would have what I wanted to do much earlier rather than not really knowing it existed. And I, I like that you talk about that phased approach that there are mentors and things mm-hmm. because I think that a lot of opportunities for kids, it's you either know about it or you don't, and then there's one chance to be involved and it's do it all yourself and then you know throw your hat in the ring. Yeah. Tell us about how this is phased across different age groups. They have um, different age groups. I think I can't remember exactly the age brackets, but each um, age bracket has um, its own little category, and then they have industry mentors to work with them to um so that's actually how I first heard about it was I was approached as a mentor to come on on board and I think I was super busy at that time so I unfortunately couldn't do it um but they approach mentors to help them through those those stages and give feedback um and then obviously there's the judging panel at the end to actually get them actual feedback and critiques on what they've worked on um and so there's been um uh feedback from different judges from each category so there's the film side and then there's the game side as well which is great so they're not just lumping it into one thing um they're actually getting curated judges and mentors for that that particular area which yeah, is awesome i love that and i haven't got ages in front of me but what i do have are that um that they consider like uh junior to be like year four participants yes. which is amazing to think of people in, in year four going off and, and making their own things and then they've got years five to mm-hmm. eight and then they group years 9 to 12, and you can imagine the real um, steps forward in capability over those age groups. Yeah, and I love the idea of also kids returning and bringing more friends along because that's a lot of this stuff would be word of mouth and through their schools and everything like that. So doing it one year, having a great time, and then coming back the next year. And then because it does go up to when they graduate, then, you know, they have a portfolio. They have a portfolio before they even get to university level, which is wild to me. So how are they um, encouraging kids to to build their skills in here and balance them out? Because I imagine with any of these, um, you know, creating anything in this space, like creating a film or an animation or a game, there's a whole range of skills. We usually think of a whole team pulling that together. (laughs) And yet we were asking these kids to kind of be across um, maybe some graphics Mm. and then some storytelling and then the technical engine Mm. kind of capability to to make things happen. Yeah, I think it's a combination of – so the Acme educational team are very much hands-on with this. It's Mm -hmm. run by their – from end-to-end by their team. So um, I've been working with Vincent over there at the Acme team and he's great. Um, And he is then also working with mentors as well. So he's working with the mentors, getting them in there and um, helping them through those different stages. Yeah. So you're at the point now where you've got finalists have been announced? I think so. Yeah. I believe so, yes. And then all of the winners – and there's a showcase going to be happening on Friday. And is that yeah. public or just for participants? I don't know. I don't – It I gets don't think, tricky in yeah. the in the school space. Yeah, I think especially at that age. I'm not too sure. And it's, it's one of those things – I love the – I went to a school where they were very much – not a participant school they were like you get first second or third no one gets participants um but i think in this situation they've done a good job but they've got their prizes but they've also got the event to celebrate everyone involved so so who do you think should be getting involved um next year and, and how can they go and check things out now and sort of get inspired a bit i i think the people that should be going are people that are just definitely hungry to learn and hungry to cut their teeth at something. I've always been someone especially that's been interested in just making stuff, whether it's physical things, digital things. I think if you're interested in making stuff, whether or not it's film or games, 
just making things and being part of a, a creative team. Um, I think that they're the folks that should definitely be involved and head to the Acme education website and check out all the information there. I believe, especially if you're a parent or within a school, you can start reaching out to them for next year's program and they'll be sure to let you know about when it's going to next, next year's is going to be open. Um, and what about the kinds of projects that these kids come up with? Is there, do you notice a theme amongst them all or is there like restrictions that they're not allowed to, you know, uh, large amounts of violence or anything like that? What's, um, cause like, uh, I imagine a lot of them, uh, you know, uh, have played uh, Grand Theft Auto or something like I'm trying that. Trying to imagine you in grade four now, Dan, and I'm really struggling. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's really interesting when you actually when when kids actually go. This is a bit of a generalization, but it's, it's something we see a lot with Girl Geek Academy as well. When you actually get kids creating things, especially that age, and especially in the climate we're in, you actually see them creating a lot of conscious, really, really thoughtful things because they're just reacting to the environment around them. While they may play Fortnite, while they may play violent games, they're actually creating things that are actually quite considered. Um, There's a lot of, it's kind of sad, there's a lot of things about environment often Mm. around things like what's going wrong with our world because they're very, they're conscious of that. They're growing up through this. This isn't something that we grew up with. So it's actually kind of (laughs) sad. It makes me really sad to see them thinking about this stuff in a very considered manner. I think also the way that this is formatted and these events are formatted, they're quite, they seem formal, so they take it quite seriously. And it's because there's a competition behind it. They're, they're really invested in making something that they're proud of. And so you're seeing these, these pieces that are actually really impressive and, and very, very thought, thought out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that there are a ton of resources on the um, acme.net.au slash education kind of screen it resources section. Mm-hmm. And even if you weren't participating this year, yes. you could easily like dive <laughs> in and they've got really cool names, all the different modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa, do you have to contribute to any of this or do you, do you I'm, get to? I'm very, very lucky. I literally just have to come talk to you (laughs) i have to go talk at events and then i get to meet all the creators on friday that makes us feel better because you're already an overachiever and you're actually (laughs) plugging into this too we just don't know how you find the time vincent's done a very very good job at collating this stuff and it's been something they've obviously been learning within the years they're very very much uh hooked into the industry as anyone that's been to acme you will know that they're not just with film but with games themselves they're they're very aware of what's going on in the industry who to talk to um what people are making in our current industry space which i think is interesting because they know what developers at an adult age are making so they're helping that to reflect back to that age group and and inspire them so i can imagine kids that are looking to take part in screen it they'll go to acme they'll see the games that people are making get inspired and then make their own games which is a beautiful storm of, of of amazing amazing creativity so do you see stuff from these kids where you're like oh i had never thought of something like that that's like really ingenious so do they give you ideas as well i think i think the way they create and they also um they don't really think about they actually create a lot of funny games they actually see humor in a lot of things that adults don't see which i, I i'm a humor and horror are a really hard thing to nail in video games i feel and the the lack of um stress around you know creating a commercial product especially within um this type of competition is really cool to see that they're actually embracing that and kind of not being as jaded as adults are (laughs) yeah (laughs) and just doing something because they're, they're enjoying it rather than thinking thinking about you know the commercial ramifications which is really cool Look, one thing I love about this is that for, you know, creative kids or people like to learn through doing and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, um, I can see that this sort of 
opportunity would really appeal to a lot of people who might not even normally throw themselves into academic <laughs> kind of pursuits Definitely. because it, it yeah. feels a little different to that. It does feel yeah, creative. I, I totally agree because that's, I think that's why I struggled. I was always like when I was a kid, like I was always considered to be, you know, smart, but I never really fit within the constraints of academia or like childhood learning but what I loved is like I had a school teacher that she made us um, make pinball machines out of cereal boxes and that was really really fun for me because I got to make something and see the results of what I was doing but I don't really work well in like assignment writing or exams. I hate, I literally chose a game design course because I hate doing exams. <laughs> we didn't have to do exams. Good move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Genius. Well, look, um, I think it's really worth looking into Acme's ScreenIt program because I can see it really appealing to the strengths of a whole range of different, different kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks like a brilliant opportunity. So do look out for the opportunities for next year and um, come to the site and get some inspiration. Mm. And they'll be announcing the winners soon. They're already down to the finalists. <laughs> and that'll be really exciting because you'll get some sneak peeks at, you know, the creativity coming from all ages. It's sensational. Thanks for your time, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we gradually wind down to the end of the show, Um, what we're thinking about are events that are coming up. And there's a Maker Basics thing going on at the library at the dock being put on, uh, and they put on all sorts of great Maker Basics sort of segments. And this one is an introduction to programming. So I thought we don't do enough calling out of the very basics at times. And I think this would be awesome. This workshop is designed to cover the basic concepts of coding to start your journey to really understanding code, um, knowing what errors are and some tips and tricks to get you started. It's designed for beginners with no prior experience. Um, It's for ages 15 plus. Um, It's free, but there is a cancellation fee of $10 if you sort of sign up and then fail to to rock up or cancel within a few days, just to really encourage people who are actually going to rock up. Um, It's on tomorrow night at the library at the docks. So it's going from 3.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. So I think it's really targeting those uh, students 15 plus who've just finished school and can can make it there. Um, I actually want to go to that because I am terrible at coding and all that kind of stuff. So that'd be a good time for me. Yeah, and not everybody likes to just take themselves through a code academy or something yeah. like that online to I- learn I've yeah. given it a go, but I'm terrible at it. I need like... Well, it can be really nice to be in a, in a space with other learners yeah. to be asking all the basic questions and going, do I understand this and checking in? And, and you know, it, I think when you learn by yourself, sometimes you can kid yourself that you understand more than you do. Yeah, and then someone absolutely. asks you a question and you think, oh, no, I don't understand the basics. Yeah. Um, I think coding, when I learned how to code, it was with a whole group of people and that was very helpful. Yeah. Well, yeah. I um, I just used uh, Twine, actually, which is a oh, video great. game. Yeah. Um, uh, software to write your own video games and really helps you do branching narratives. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I struggled. I yeah, <laughs> I definitely need to get some uh, coding lessons. I think so. Um, yeah, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, opportunities routinely pop up in this town. We're pretty fortunate, so I think that's that's a great one. So it's always worth looking at the library at the dock um, learning agendas and just checking them out online. There's something else going on um, at the Alfred Hospital. This is kind of cool. Um, Dan, do you use any fitness tracking devices? Um, 
I just got an iPhone, so I oh, use it's got their, the inbuilt. Yeah, their health app just to measure my steps, basically. That's about it. Well, this is an event that I haven't seen many of before. Um, it's about performance-enhancing technology for athletes, and it asks, what is my watch trying to tell me? What they're investigating is what this new wave of technology tells us about activity, cardiovascular health, and performance. And what would these people know about cardiovascular health, you ask? Well, they have a cardiologist speaking because this event has been put on by the Alfred Research Alliance Education Centre. So I didn't know the Alfred Hospital had this um, education centre like, built into them. But this is really cool. So what they're going to be talking about is, you know, whether you're an elite athlete, a coach, a weekend warrior or an amateur, you can join the world-leading sports cardiologist, Professor Andre Lagerche, and a panel of experts to cut through the science fiction and help you better understand um, what essential technology you could be using for your training and how to interpret performance data to maximise your racing and recovery, how to strike a balance between training and recovery, how to perfect your athletic movement and eliminate injury, and motivation and goal setting with modern devices. I think this is really cool. Yeah, that is cool. I've, I've always imagined like, uh, like Fitbits and things like that um, they sh- like if they had a pulse reader in them because they mm. go around your wrist and you've got a um, you know a pulse there. So I was always uh, that's just my idea. You thought for it was a, a missed opportunity. Yeah, missed opportunity. There so. used to be some very uncomfortable exercise bikes that would have these you know little. Oh, the Sticky li- things that you could stick on your body and you're like, oh, it's a bit or hospital-like. Or the, the ones with the metal pads where you grip onto it. Oh, that's right, yeah. I've never got them to work, though. Like, I always try to get them to work. Or, or maybe you're just not then. sweaty enough, Dan. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know if that makes them work. Or not. <laughs> I would have thought that that would help you conduct. I think it's a more intense heartbeat or... Right. Yeah. Right, right maybe. <laughs> well, look, this event with the Alfred Research Alliance Education Centre is on Tuesday the 27th of November between 6.30 and 7.30pm. You do need to RSVP by tomorrow, though. So if you're interested in hearing about uh, this sort of uh, fitness technology, go to Eventbrite and look up performance enhancing technology for athletes and you'll find it there. Um, Pretty cool opportunity. Uh, I loved that they were talking about perfecting your athletic movement because I don't feel like there's a lot of devices that do that yet. But I know professional football players are using things like vests that monitor like movement as well as like geographic movement, yeah, you know, but yeah, physical movement. Yeah, I've um, seen a few uh, like Collingwood players out on uh, Melbourne Park Oval where they're wearing yeah, the mm. things around their chest. And looks like a sports bra almost, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. yeah. That, what, don't don't wrinkle up your eyebrows. You know that's a good look. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> sports bras are amazing. Um, yeah, amazingly uncomfortable. Yeah. Did you know that there's a Melbourne company that makes uh, yoga gear that is designed to help you improve your your posture as you move through, like the correct, um, you know, body position as you're moving through different positions by giving you haptic feedback throughout yeah, okay. the gear. I did not know, but that is very interesting. It's really cool, right? Because yoga, another thing I'm terrible at, so well, maybe I could get involved Maybe with this. you just need the right haptic suit, <laughs> yes, you know. Absolutely. It's the Spider-Man story all over again. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> Batman would be more appropriate. Yeah, well, with uh, a little, uh, few less anger issues because of the relaxing yoga. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. A suit and you're a superhero. That's all you need. That's it. Big thank you to our guests this evening, Dr. Flora Salim, who's been doing amazing research with RMIT into um, how to use data in crime prediction modelling. And also to Lisey Kane, who's practically a regular on the show now, but it's always a joy to have her in her role as screen ambassador with Acme Education. So do check that out if you know anybody in the uh, 
school ages from grade four all the way to year 12, there are opportunities to compete in annual competitions around making film, animation and video games. Great opportunity. Big thank you to our listeners tonight. Uh, we've been bite into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.